Hello and welcome to Out Loud. I'm your host, Greg Thompson, and today on the show we have Lena Landstrom. Lena is currently a Master of Theological Studies student at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and Lena's gender pronouns are she, her, hers, identifying both as lesbian and queer. She's originally from Sweden, and although she was not raised in any particular church, we learn about her journey from worshiping in the Swedish Lutheran Church over to the United Methodist Church here in the U.S. Lena demonstrates a resilience in her reaction to the recent general conference vote by the Methodist Church that affirmed the church's doctrine against full LGBTQIA inclusion. We discuss that as well as her hopes for marriage someday in the church and misconceptions about marriage for LGBTQIA people of faith. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to say thank you to our Patreon supporters who are helping finance the production of this season. If you like what you hear, become a patron. At just $15 a month, you can get exclusive access to unedited episodes of the show, just like this one. And a quick thank you to everyone who came out to my talk in Missouri, as well as our first ever live show here in Nashville. It was so wonderful getting to know you all, and it was such a success that we really hope to do another live show again soon. And now, let's hear from Lena Landstrom. Thanks for being on the show, Lena. Thank you for having me. Now, you identify as um, queer and as lesbian. Can you break down those terms for me and what they mean to you, just to get us kind of started off? Yeah, I identify differently depending on what day you ask. <laughs> okay. um, it's not super important to me with terminology and identity. I don't necessarily like being put into a box. Uh, I fall in love with girls. I'm a cis woman falling in love with girls mainly, but I've also, in later years, started like having crushes on guys. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm open to wherever life takes me. So I'm not necessarily super, super strict in a box. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. It's I could write a book about <laughs> my, about what it means for me and my identity. Yeah. So yeah, it changes. It sounds like and varies. Yeah, it's it, it's yeah. fluid. It seems like I'm more into girls than I, anything else. But if there's the right guy at some moment, then that's it. And yeah. so sometimes, like gay or lesbian, feels a little restricting or. I get too many questions when I have a crush on a guy if I say that I'm gay. But yeah. queer can also be a term that's hard for a lot of people. So in certain contexts, I say gay just because it's easier to understand. Yeah. yeah. So, When did you um, first kind of asking yourself questions about, oh, do I like girls and not guys? When was that? When did that start for you? It came very suddenly for me when I was 12, when I... Oh fell in love with a girl and it was like overnight like literally oh okay and that was a shock and then after a few weeks I sort of looked back at my life at that age and was like oh this makes kind of a lot of sense um so yeah I was 12 and for the first few weeks I'm like I'm bisexual to myself to my diary I obviously I didn't come out until years later but um, so yeah, I was like, I'm bisexual. I'm just going to marry a guy that I fall in love with and ignore the girls. And after a few weeks, I was like, no, I don't like, it's different with girls than with guys. Yeah. And so you also said that you were, um, raised 
not in any church necessarily. Is that right? Yeah. So when did when did you start moving toward the church and start kind of facing a clash between those two identities? Yeah. So I I didn't grow up in any kind of religious household. My family through generations is not at all religious or have a faith. So everyone is like questioning how how did that happen, <laughs> Lena? Yeah. Um, but I Sweden is or especially was when I was born in the 90s uh, and when I grew up a very uh, very impacted by Christianity and uh, we used to have a state church the Swedish Lutheran Church and so I was baptized as an infant in the church Um, so it was around me but we were in no way going to church Mm, Uh, and then I started I think I always kind of had a faith although I didn't really articulate it as such until much later. And then at age, I guess, 14, um, since I was baptized, I was or a member of the church, um, as was everyone else in my class, uh, you got had the option to be confirmed. And after a lot of thinking back and forth, I decided to try it out. Uh, and at this point, I was already kind of scared of the church because I knew that I was gay and so I was very hesitant to get into the church Uh, but that is when it started that to sort of become more of a real thing and I had a lot of during my teenage years I had a lot of good experiences of church and I also had a lot of um, clashes I had a lot of fear about the bible I wouldn't touch the bible because I knew it was homophobic I'd never read it but people said Mm. it was Mm. So there was a lot of, like, I instinctively knew that the church and the Bible wasn't for me. Um, so for throughout my teenage years, it was in large part that I am a Christian, I have a very strong faith, but I don't need the Bible or the church for my faith. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. A Christian faith without the Bible. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what did the um, the Lutheran Church in the U.S. now is fairly affirming. What was the situation like then in Sweden? Was was it officially affirming of LGBT folks, or what was the culture like there? I mean, it, it is fairly affirming. It started doing same-sex, not weddings, but ceremonies, partnerships uh, on some uh, kind of level in the 90s. Uh, marriage came in 2009 when it also was legalized in Sweden as a state. So that came at the same time the church and the state, the same year with a few months apart. Um, but it still differs depending on church and where in the country you are. But it is a fairly a fairly um, liberal or open and affirming yeah. uh, denomination. But I remember... It must have been like the year before same-sex marriage was legalized. I had the conversation with one of my friends I had come out to that that was sort of my big thing at that moment because one of the things that I've wanted since like way before I knew that I was gay is to get married and to get married in the church. Mm -hmm. Like even before I knew I liked the church, I wanted to get married in the church and that was sort of... I, I, I was that little girl who dreamed of her wedding and when I was 12 and realized I was gay my partner changed to woman but that was kind of it I still wanted that big wedding in a church and so I remember having that conversation with one of my friends of that I'm not going to be able to get married 
what do I do? And I remember that's, I'm not that old, but it was still a conversation that I had uh, and a worry that I had growing up that what now? I'm not, not going to be allowed to get married. Yeah. Um, so that was a big thing for me when that changed. Yeah. Mm. I think I, I had a similar kind of like progression of realizations growing up too. Like I knew when I was in uh, college, I started to, I was discerning the priesthood. Do I mm-hmm. want to get, be ordained? And, and then I slowly came to the realization oh no, I definitely want to be married mm-hmm. and like was going to friends' weddings and like watching the bride walk down the aisle and just tears streaming mm-hmm. down my face with like just the joy of like, oh, this is such a beautiful ceremony. This is such a beautiful like symbol. And um, and, I, and I knew how important marriage was to me before um, all of that before coming out. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I feel you in that sense of like, then you come out and it's like now, okay, what is this? You know, how much of that do I get to keep? Mm-hmm. And um, and if some of that looks a little different, will it still be the same? And how much of that is what the culture is telling me I'm supposed yeah. to love? And and how much of it is what I really desire to? So, yeah. Yeah, so we're jumping in time now, but there's this Australian magazine uh, of lesbian weddings that was mm-hmm. launched maybe a year ago that I follow on Instagram, and that has completely blew my mind I've never seen anything like it and they post daily pictures of lesbian weddings around Mm -hmm. the world and I just love seeing it and dreaming of it and that dream is still so alive for me and so it's so it's so important to have those things I mean still today we're way into the 21st century and I am way up in my 20s um, and I've been out for so long but still seeing those those same-sex couples, those girls getting married, still touches me so hard, yeah. like so deeply. Um, dreaming about my own, hopefully one day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what then brought you? Um, what then brought you over to the U.S. from Sweden? So I first came to the U.S. Uh, in two thousand and nine, and I did an exchange year at a high school in in Kansas. Um, I spent a semester in Kansas in Hayesville. Uh, I turned 16 when I was there. And then when I was back in Sweden, I just, I wasn't done. Uh, So at age 18, I came back for a college year in 2012, 2013, moved back to Sweden and still wasn't done. So in 2015, um, I came back to the U.S. and I've been here ever since, um, going through college and now at the master's level. What did your faith mean to you then? And was that kind of, sh- and was that shifting as you came over here? Um, yeah, so I, um, I transferred, I, I did community college in California and in 2016 I transferred to a college in New York to finish uh, college and when I lived in 2015 when I lived in LA I had started going to church again and I just I knew nothing at all about denominations nothing and so I just googled LGBTQ friendly churches and I happened to have a church 
within walking distance from my apartment, which does not happen in L.A. Mm. So I started going to Hollywood United Methodist Church. And a church in Hollywood is exactly what it sounds like. It's literally uh, a block from Hollywood Boulevard, all the stars. Um, and it was it was a fairly large United Methodist Church, somewhat high church, but not super. It was far from that Kansas church. Mm. But it was still, it was me coming back to church and it was me feeling very embraced uh, by a church. This was a very queer-friendly church. Um, so when I moved to New York, I the pastor of Hollywood United Methodist Church uh, recommended a church for me, uh, Church of the Village, in the village in New York City. And it's a small church, very uh, far from high church. It's, it's doing church in its own way, uh, very lively, very eclectic, very... Uh, multicultural, great music, uh, very familiar. Like, it's a family environment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is that really became a home for me for my two years in New York. Mm. And so, being going worshiping in the Methodist Church, did you start to... Um, associate with the Methodist Church like as part of the religion you identified with and were, were you exploring that at that time? Yeah I mean I never really explored anything other like anything else yeah. I kind of stuck with it after I had found it. I quickly learned that the Methodist theology very much was for me and I could really identify with it. Um, denominations as or yeah, denomination has never been super important for me, I guess, because of how I grew up. Um, but I did become a member after about a year and a half of worshiping in the Methodist church. I did become a member of the Methodist church. And so yeah. it has become increasingly important because I have so much community in the Methodist church now, in the American Methodist church. But it doesn't necessarily, it's not the end all for me necessarily in terms of denomination, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so we haven't talked about the general conference yet, no. <laughs> <laughs> the elephant in the room, um, within the United Methodist church mm-hmm. and, um, and on regarding matters of LGBT inclusion. So what were your expectations as, as you've been coming into the Methodist Church, what have been your expectations about the church's policies on LGBT inclusion and um, leading up to the, the vote that happened in February? It's so funny because I stayed away from church for so long out of fear for being excluded as a yeah. queer person. And getting back into church, it was so important for me that I found a queer inclusive church and of course I did find a church but not a denomination so it's kind of funny of where I ended up in the Methodist church and in the midst of this struggle for LGBTQ inclusion Um, I had a queer pastor when I lived in New York for the first year year and a half and so I got very involved in that process after moving to New York, mm. uh, after 
the 2016 conference. So I wasn't in LA still when the 2016 conference happened and the call for the 2019 conference happened. Um, okay. So you were kind of involved in in advocacy then or just kind of knowing what's going on? I, or? When I was in LA, I just kind of knew what was going okay. on. Um, barely that, but I sort of heard of it. Yeah. They talked a lot about it. But when I, I came to New York, it became more of a process. And I went to Bishop Karen Oluido's trial in New Jersey oh, wow. with okay. the church community. And I became, I connected really. Um, and that beca- became very life-changing in so many ways. And so important for my faith in very ironic, positive ways to get into that Um fight for inclusion in the Methodist Church. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, um, in the weeks, days leading up to the conference, what were your expectations as far as how the church would would vote on that? I think I, I definitely lived in a bubble um, leading up to it. And I was did not think that the traditional plan. I was very set for that. Oh, we're going to do a one church plan. It's going to be this compromise. And I just thought it was obvious that that was going to. That's how it was going to go. Right. Um, that was what the bishops had suggested. That was what the commission on a way forward had suggested. So I just thought, of, I mean, yeah, it's the greatest compromise. Of course, that's going to happen. And I. Oftentimes, I, I went into it the same way I went into the 2016 election, the same way I went into the Brexit vote. Like, of course everything is going to work <laughs> it's out. Great. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of surprised. I, I, yeah. I think I was not, uh, yeah, I was not prepared for, for how it, it was going to go at all. Yeah. And just to recap, um, for folks that may aren't um, in the United Methodist Church or aren't plugged into this because even when I was kind of following the headlines on the general conference, I was shocked that it wasn't higher up on my feed from the New York times about the vote and, you know, those kinds of things. So, um, so the, the commission for a way forward was the group that was organized to kind of decide, okay, here are some different possibilities, some different routes as far as how we can organize as a church around LGBT inclusion. And you mentioned the traditional plan, which was saying, keep everything kind of the way it is. Yeah, so it does not allow same-sex marriage, and it does not allow LGBTQ clergy. Um, and um, for a clergy that does uh, perform same-sex marriages, um, they will be pros- prosecuted. And it, it it is the same way that it has been for the past year, few years. But it it's taking... They are sort of stepping up the trial process. So you will be sort of, as in a general court of law prosecuted but it's a church trial um Mm. and kicked out of the church basically on a much higher level they're going to prosecute a lot more so it's the same church laws and policies but they're just going to enforce it a lot harder yeah so you're still and that it's important to mention that the church explicitly does allow lgbtq congregants um so you're allowed to be a member of the church if you're queer, it's it has nothing against that, but it is uh, clergy and same-sex weddings, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, which is important to at least be clear on, and because th- that's something we've talked about 
I've talked about with other people on the show before is this difference between being accepting and affirming. Yeah. And what I hear more and more from people and I want to uplift is like, if you're an affirming congregation, it means that you're willing to put LGBT folks in a leadership role and let them be in front of other people. And so that's, so this vote is a turn away from that. And it sounds more of just like an accepting, like, yes, you can, you can be LGBTQIA plus and be in this church but that's and be in these pews, mm-hmm. and that's that's it. Yeah. Can you receive communion? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think what you just said is so important because I remember my the Hollywood church I went to, uh, the children's minister when I was there at least uh, was a gay man, married gay mm-hmm. man with two young boys, and I remember that. You know, with all the things you hear of, like, gay men being compared to pedophiles and mm. uh, that sort of homophobia of gay men and children don't go together is sort of the sort of homophobic saying. That was one of the things that stood out to me about that church as so affirming mm. that not only do we put gay people and queer people in leadership, but we have them teach our, our children. Yeah. Um, so that was very impactful for me coming to that church. And I think it's so important that it's not only the choir leader who's gay, but it's also the one in the pulpit and the one yeah. teaching the children's and like, where do you also put them in the leadership? Yeah. Mixed in with everyone else. Yeah. 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 I, um, I can understand your surprise because it sounds like you had some amazing queer leaders both in Hollywood and in the village. Yeah. While you were kind of moving into this into this church. Um what was what was your gut reaction when you found out that the vote was going to be toward the traditional plan and not being affirming? I uh, So we were in St. Louis. We were a group from Vanderbilt who yeah. who went and so the conference happened from Sunday through Tuesday, and we were there. It sort of was a pre-conference a few days before that. So we were there Saturday, Sunday. And just before we left on Sunday, they, there was a, an initial vote on what petitions were going to, uh, they were going to work through in what order. And the traditional plan ended up as the highest plan. So and you could see that all, all of the... Um, non-affirming stuff ended up at the top and so I was, as far as what they wanted to vote on and discuss first yes okay. and so so that was what happened on sunday and then on monday they talked through the plans in that order to sort mm-hmm. of um uh, make any needed changes or whatever and then on tuesday the vote happened and so they weren't going to get through all the plans or all the petitions um so that is why it was impo- so important what ended up at the top on, on mm. Sunday in the prioritizing list. And so I was sitting and I was holding hands with uh, some of my classmates. And I remember the whole, we were in a, in a stadium in St. Louis and it just got dead silent. And I remember like, wow, I, I remember saying, wow, that's bad. Um, so when the vote actually happened on Tuesday, there had been several votes before that and several, like the process was sort of this three-day process where you saw where it was heading. 
So when the vote actually happened on Tuesday, it was just a confirming of what had been happening for those. So in in a way, it sort of it was good because it gave you time to accept it in the mm-hmm. process of it happening. Um, so the biggest shock was there on Sunday um, when the initial vote um, was, and I think just my, my I was really heartbroken. Not so much for myself. But so much for, I have so many friends who are very, very invested in, in the movement, yeah. more, a lot more than yeah. I am, and who have been Methodists their whole lives and for generations and have been called to ministry in this church and who are amazing pastors. One of the, or the best pastor um, that I know that exists in the world is a queer pastor at another church in New York City. Hmm. Um and she, Pastor Lee, she is just the most pastoral person there is. And you want to kick her out because she's married to a woman. Like, it, it, yeah. I was so heartbroken and I saw her. I just happened to be talking to her just minutes after that vote happened um, because we were leaving. And so I was saying goodbye. And just seeing her that was sort of the image that kept staying with me seeing her so seeing her so heartbroken made me so heartbroken Mm -hmm. um yeah what were what were folks saying around you in that in that moment as far as i mean people being invested for their whole lives like you said um what were what were the reactions of other people from vanderbilt or just around you um a lot of heartbreak, a lot of anger, but in general, silence. Um, we we drove to and from St. Louis, and we we had decided to stay to see the results of the vote. And after that, we were driving home because we had a kind of a long drive home on a Sunday afternoon uh, to come back to classes for Monday morning. And for the first half hour, 45 minutes in the car, it was just dead silent. Five people, um, just dead silence. Um, and in, in my communities from New York and, um, the people who are not geographically near me anymore, but who I, I know from the movement from when I lived in New York, there was a lot, a lot of heart, heartbreak and anger, yeah. uh, was in general the sentiment. Yeah. And now that it's been, um, about a month or so, um, what, what, what's, and, and the shock is kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> set in and and um, moved out a bit. What, what are, what are folks saying around now? Um, it's very different, and it sort of goes in waves. And it, I hear a lot of different things from different people in different communities. Um, some people are very set on leaving and starting their own denomination. They are sick and tired of it. Um, there has been a lot of grief. Um, and even though the initial shock has sort of worn off, I've seen a lot of prolonged grief and um, questions that arises um, a little bit at the time. Like suddenly you remember, oh, what's going to happen to this? And now what about that? And so... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's going to take a lot of time, um, but I see a lot of grief, and I see a lot of people who um, 
want to take their church out of the denomination. And I see a lot of individuals wanting to leave the denomination. But I've also seen uh, individuals, myself included, being feeling even more stronger, committed to the cause of the United Methodist Church and feeling now more than ever that we have to stay mm. and be a part of the church. Yeah. What, what brought you to that hopeful outlook? I'm so glad that's your response, but what, what is that? Um, what's, what has it taken for you to kind of come to that? For me, that was immediate, and I think for me, it was so. Much, I do not feel called to ordination, and mm. so from and I've come so far in my process and where I am with God and where I am with the church. So for me, the immediate response was, even if everyone else leaves, I have to stay because that young queer kid in the middle of Tennessee, in the middle of Kansas, in the middle of Texas, has to know that they are not alone. That there is at least one other person somewhere in this church that does exist. So for me, I was like, yeah. I'm going to stay and hold on for those who grow up. Because also, mm. if if the, if the queer-affirming part of the church leaves, then the more traditional side is going to become even more traditional. So what does that do for the young kids that grow up in that environment yeah that's a really helpful way of looking at it I think um and not one that I you know it's for me it, like thinking about it it's like this fight or flight response mm -hmm. like okay stay or go like what do I do and um but it's also political and and it's it's easy to kind of get wrapped up in all that but when you just said that about growing up in the church, it's also like it's also just a reality. Like I mean, and we there are statistics, you know, about yeah. how many LGBT people there are, just in general, and and you know, I'm not exactly sure like what percentage of folks throughout the world are. Like, I think it's like ten or fifteen percent or mm -hmm. something like that. But like that statistic is not gonna change mm -hmm. anytime soon. Therefore people are still going to be raised in the Methodist church who are LGBT identifying. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you're spot on. Like there's still going to be people in every denomination that are going to be faced with coming out in that denomination. At some and point. in every community in every religion in every country. And I think that is so much where my larger call in life is. Mm -hmm. So my response to um, the United Methodist church was so in line of, where I already saw myself going, although I didn't yeah. really see it happening in my own denomination. Um, that is my part in this world, so. Yeah. What, um, mm. Sorry, my heart's like heavy about this. <laughs> Can I say something good yeah. about it though? Yeah. Or like, yeah. um, something that really made me happy was seeing my, seeing the response from my Swedish friends to what was happening in the church. Mm. Um, cause after, I, I sometimes joke that it was easier to come out as gay in Sweden than it was to come out as uh, a person of faith, uh, which mm. is somewhat true. Uh, and I think, if not on the podcast, you've talked, at least we've talked personally about that sometimes the LGBTQ community can be very hostile towards 
um, people of faith mm. and, and, and especially Christians in some ways. And I think that is true that the secular LGBTQ community can be maybe just as hostile for Christ- mm. uh, against Christians as the Christians can be against LGBTQ people. So when this happened in the United Methodist Church and after the vote, I sort of just posted something about it on social media uh, with a link to the New York Times article about it. And my friends over in Sweden, who some of them I know are so anti-Christianity and they could have used the moment to be like, hey, time to get out of there now, huh? Or like say something of, of, you know, yeah, Christianity isn't all of that good. But I got so much support from my friends in Sweden. Some of, like, I, I know some of them are so against Christianity. And they were mm. like, I'm so sorry, Lena. I know this means a lot to you. I am so heartbroken for you. How can I support you? How can I help you in this? And I just think that is so beautiful when you can be there for one another for things that you don't believe in, but that you know the other person. Uh, it means so much for the other person. Preach. <laughs> so that was so that was really something that was so important for me in the wake of everything that happened that I had those friends who are not at all connected to the United Methodist Church be so supportive um, for me. So, yeah. I love that. <laughs> oh. No, I'm so glad because, um, I mean, it's so... I mean, just initially what I'm thinking of is um, is the challenge of coming out to folks who don't affirm your sexuality at all, especially it could be family members or just people close to you, friends mm-hmm. that you've had for a long time. And, and just what you said earlier is is spot on that like you can support people without having to totally ascribed to their belief system Mm -hmm. and the same way you can you can support someone whether or not you quote-unquote believe in their sexuality um that's you know that's i think that's a place that i've come to with folks in my life is like you may you may not totally this may not be the quote-unquote lifestyle that you Mm -hmm. want for me but i still want you to to support me and uh, it would be wonderful if we believed the same thing, but um, just like in f- different faith traditions, you can't, I can only do but so much to evangelize you to mm-hmm. believe what I believe about my faith, about God or about my sexuality. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's a challenge. And so, but whenever someone reaches out, mm-hmm. even if they don't totally, or on, even if they're not totally on board with you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that just, that's like a weight lifted too yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And I think that is like what life is all about. And I think we need so much more of that, especially in this sort of, as we always talk about this more polarized world, as we like to say at a time of of, um, of Trump and Brexit and all of that that mm-hmm. is happening in, in the world. I think it's so important that you don't have to agree with everyone. You don't have to understand their life at all whatever it may be but you can still be there and support them in their journey yeah well and what comes out of that i mean is relationship Mm -hmm. and when you're in deep relationship with somebody you know what matters to them yeah and so they saw you post something 
about your church and they knew that mattered to you yeah and they could reach back out and the challenge with politics and just the polarization is that we lose that relationship piece so quickly and we want to put a wall up or snooze or mute whoever we can on social media or in our day-to-day lives and just be like i'm not going to hang out with that person i'm not going to talk to that person and um and you miss out on relationship and a deep knowing and and that possibility to to bridge a little better so Yeah. yeah That's great. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad something positive came out of that for you. Yeah. Um, what is um, perhaps your your prayer or your hope for um, for the UMC? I pray that the United Methodist Church can learn to love it, each other. The people of the United Methodist Church can learn how to love one another from both sides, from all sides, no matter what happens policy-wise, politically. Um, I pray that the church doesn't split, although I think um, that's a lot to pray for. But I think a split would hurt everyone in different ways. So I pray really hard that the church is able to stay together and that we start talking to one another. And I think that's important both in the church and outside of the church that we just sit down and listen to one another and have a conversation and hear each other's perspectives and hear each each other's sides. Um, Yeah. And what, I mean whether in the church context or more broadly, what what do you what do you do to take care of you? Um, I tried to, and I started looking at this from a very like faith based perspective of that I'm a create in the same way I see everyone else as created in love by God. I too am, and it's sometimes easy to forget for it, it's easy to forget that you too is created in the same love you see everyone else being created in Mm. and um so for me it's very important to care for the body and the soul and nurture it in the way that god intended it to be loved that i love it in the same intensity that god loves me and so in a way it's very physical it's like caring for me eating healthy and balanced and working out Um, I have a dog, which is so important for my health in so many areas. Uh, he's the best little buddy, um, both getting me out on walks, uh, but also just snuggling in bed and, um, just loving me unconditionally when I get home after school, no matter how bad my day was. Um, and going to church has become important for me now in recent years. Uh, more so than it was when I was a teenager. Um, so I sort of nurture myself um, spiritually a lot by going to church. And I try to also experience different uh, worship styles uh, to sort of see where I find God since I sort of dove right into the Methodist church. I've been trying to go to some classmates to their churches and see uh, what gives me joy and what gives me life and what kind of 
worship style do I enjoy? And where do I find God? And I think I find God everywhere. I don't need to be in church. I like going to church. But I don't need to be in church to be with God. Especially in nature. There's so much God in nature. Um, yeah. That's great. Uh, you mentioned you have a couple projects kind of coming up. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, so I'm super excited about one specific project. Uh, I'm going to, I got, I got a grant, so I'm going to Israel in May, which I am super excited about. Uh, it's such a historic, I'm a history buff, uh, apart from it being like a holy place. I just love historical sites and historical places and history in general. Um, so I'm going to Israel, and I'll also, I'm there for the week of the Eurovision Song Contest, which anyone who's American listening to this will be confused to, as to what that is. <laughs> and if you're European, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but the Eurovision Song Contest is, is a contest that started as a peace project in the 50s, uh, post-World War II, as a way to bring Europe together. It, it was a part in the project of uniting Europe. And um, it's Europe-ish. It's sort of queering the idea of what Europe is as well, because it includes Israel and Azerbaijan and in recent years, Australia. Um, but everyone sends a song that represents their nation. So it's about 40 countries um, every year that competes and the winning nation gets to host it the following year. So Israel won last year, so that's why it's in Israel this year. Um, so it's a pop song contest. It's a peace project. It's uh, this sort of unofficial pride festival because it draws a lot of, um, especially gay men, but a lot of queer people. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm super excited to get to experience that. And you're thinking, uh, we talked a bit before, um, uh, you're thinking about kind of taking some of this into your studies, studying Eurovision a bit, right? Yeah. Um, because it, it is this unofficial Pride Festival, or it's it's been called the Gay World Olympics by, um, by some. And I'm wondering, because it brings together people from Russia, where homosexuality is illegal in, in various ways with Sweden who you know is very open and all of these countries compete together and you have openly gay acts and you have uh, same-sex couples on stage and you have all of these you have rainbow flags and it's hundreds of millions of viewers all across the world watching this from so many different nations particularly in Europe but also um, across the world and so I'm interested to see what does this in countries, particularly in countries where having a regular Pride Festival is hard or maybe even impossible. What does it mean to be able to go to another country for this festival once a year? And what does it mean to have this community? And what can we learn of this sort of intercultural exchange that is so queer affirming? And what can we take from that into other communities and other work? And, um, yeah, I'm excited to learn more about 
what people think about it and what what it means for queer folks yeah it reminds me a bit of um my experience hearing you talk about that reminds me of going to the q christian conference earlier this mm-hmm. year which is a fully affirming um queer christian gathering and i didn't realize what a big deal this gathering meant mm-hmm. or was for people that were there and how um this is one of the the only communities that this might be their only community mm-hmm. that's where they can be totally out totally themselves both queer identifying and christian of some flavor mm-hmm. and um and yeah and the question is like okay well now that you've experienced this and mm-hmm. you're around people that are like you or that have, you know, love the same music mm-hmm. as you do or what, what, yeah, what, what, what is it that you bring back is always the, um, the tricky part, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Something that I think that they do so great is that they allow people to be, to have different faiths and different theologies, what it means to be queer and Christian. And I think that is sometimes forgotten in, the conversation and especially when you are in progressive Christian spaces where it's okay and it's affirming to be LGBTQ and we spoke about marriage and how important marriage is to me and I I think it's important to remember that just because you're a queer and Christian doesn't mean that you sign up on a specific sort of progressive queer um people have a very specific idea of what it means to be queer and they think that the Christian isn't as important for them. And I, I found that to be, even in, in queer Christian spaces, sometimes to be to be a struggle for me. That I, I wouldn't say that I'm conservative in any way, but that I hold parts of my Christian identity so strong and I believe in marriage and I believe in this and that. And that does not go out the window just because I'm queer. Um, And I still want to get married in the church. And I still believe in marriage. And I still have all of these ideas of what it means in my life. Um, That does not mean that everyone else have to believe in marriage or to be married or whatever. Um, But What what doesn't... I I think you're... This is such an important point. Like, for you, Mm -hmm. what, what doesn't get thrown out? Um, I think relationship, and for me, that um, monogamy and what sex is and um, marriage and um, I think those parts are so important for me, those sort of quote-unquote family values that, you know, progressives don't even want to mention that term because there's so many connotations to that which is understandable but I think it's important to remember that there is a queer way to live that life as well and that because even if I want to live that way doesn't mean that I am in any way going to look down upon anyone who lives their life another way or is called to another way of living their life but I think it's important to be to remember that as a queer Christian, I can still hold those values and find them important to my life. Yeah. And that's the hard 
that's the hardest part I think is then deciding kind of and part of the work of divinity school too mm-hmm. is kind of deciding what you believe in like mm-hmm. what what is your theology now on that because that's sort of uncharted territory at least especially for me in the catholic church it was yeah. you know okay so church doctrine says that it's intrinsically disordered to practice homosexuality mm-hmm. is the phrasing but if you throw that so if if I'm in a if I'm in a relationship with somebody and I'm essentially throwing that phrase out and just mm-hmm. saying I'm not <laughs> not believing that part, mm-hmm. does that mean I throw out um, the part of Catholic doctrine that's about being celibate until I'm yeah. married? Um, and like you said, living in a monogamous relationship. I mean, like it can be really. You're right. The culture can be really quick to just be like, mm, maybe just throw those things out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it becomes a question in my tradition, at least okay, well, what is the purpose of being celibate? Mm -hmm. Why is that important in this tradition? Is it specifically to save sex for procreation? Mm -hmm. Or is it something else? Mm -hmm. Is is the act so sacred itself? Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not procreation is involved. Yeah. And that uh, is something that is not talked about a lot. No, at all no <laughs> and even in divinity school people and I, I get that it's it's a sensitive topic for a lot of people and purity culture like the trauma of purity culture is very real but it's also there are so many assumptions made about you and your political values and your theology when you say that you're queer and I can find that problematic as well and also like going to date as a as a queer christian who hold those values how how does that even work like i i don't it that isn't a whole other navigation and um and i think for me it has become increasingly important i think that my future partner also has a faith although that might not happen like, I don't know who I meet tomorrow, uh, but how, yeah, it's hard enough to date as a lesbian, and then it's hard enough to date as a queer, as a Christian lesbian, and then you sort of hold all of these thoughts and values around marriage and sex and this and that, and suddenly... <laughs> There's like You've no one there. Society. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so. So I I just wish that those are things that we could talk about more to open that conversation, yeah. and not have it be so stigmatized. Um, in general, so that it 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 also becomes easier to meet people who because I I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um who sort of thinks that around my theology, even though I'm queer. And so, but if we don't talk about it, I'm never going to find my people, if that is how you want to put it. What can you imagine as far as, like, providing more space for the complexities of our identities? I think it's... It's part of my very nature to just question everything. Yeah. I, I, I'm sort of, every time anyone want to generalize or anything, I'll always be the loud person. <laughs> uh, which, um, 
you know, in the classroom can be both a good and a bad. Um, and I think it's, I think that I too have struggled to open the conversation and I wish that I could be a little bit more courageous in that part. Um, growing up in super liberal, progressive Sweden, um, it's not a conversation that you will, like, part of me moving to Nashville was that maybe it will be a little easier to sort of come to terms with what this means for me and find my people here and open that conversation. Um, because it also is um, something that I am trying to navigate in holding my identity and my values and my theology in this world and not feel shame and not feel stigmatized. Um, and then at the same time, like it's, it's a little scary to sort of open that door and say sort of, this is me. And then you don't know if anyone's going to be there and be like, oh yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, coming out as gay or, or queer, that is a known fact, but then you become sort of marginalized in your own minority and and further and further I'm already sort of a minority in the minority being a person of faith and then sort of like it becomes you sort of cut yourself out of your community more and more yeah um so I think I think it's um maybe just sort of boldly stating your truth and see who who shows up for you I don't know (laughs) Uh, I try, I have a tattoo that says courage. I try to lead by that. I try to have a lot of faith in God and that stuff works out. And there's, uh, some several billion people on this earth. I can't be the only one, um, who thinks the way that I think and who am the way I am. Um, we are all very unique, but none of us are as unique as we think we are. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I'm hoping it's a, it's a conversation we can maybe have a little bit more, yeah. a little bit more openly at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it goes both ways. I think it takes the people that we come out to, to not make those assumptions. Mm-hmm. But then I think like you're saying too, you're right. I think. You know, it, it takes us kind of having that conversation with more people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. being vulnerable and and it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard being yourself <laughs> in a world that has very clear ideas of what you should be. Yeah. Um, we all, no matter what quote unquote side you're on, have to remember that in the end we're all humans. And that is sort of my the thing that I try to preach, uh, not from the pulpit, but sort of my (laughs) message in the world is that we all cry the same. We all are all mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and children to someone. And we are all scared of stuff and we all, our hearts, we get our hearts broken and it doesn't matter where in the world you live or what identities you hold. In the end, as humans, we are more alike than anything else. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes we just have to be reminded of that, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's mm. a good reminder. 
thank you Thanks. for being on the show and for sharing so much of yourself um, with with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah. A special thanks to Lena for being on the show this week. If you want to follow her online, her handle is at Landstrom Lena. That's her last name before her first name. Just follow the link in the show notes. And if you'd like to share your own opinions about Eurovision, religion, and LGBTQ culture, feel free to drop her line. I know she would really appreciate it for her research. We discussed a few things about the United Methodist Church that I personally have been learning more about lately as their vote unfolded in February of this year. More information about what happened at the General Conference, as well as other LGBTQIA voices in this conversation, can be found in our show notes. And if you have a resource you'd like for us to share for LGBTQIA individuals coming out in the United Methodist Church in light of the vote, please reach out and we'll add them to our website. Out Loud is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, and is hosted and edited by me, Greg Thompson. You can learn more about the show at OutLoudStories.com and on Facebook and Instagram at OutLoudStories. And you can help support the show by contributing monthly to our Patreon page, which gets you exclusive access to unedited episodes of the show. Just last week, I dropped the unedited version of Maria Machansky's episode and completely forgot that we had a wonderful conversation about the Enneagram that we had to cut for time. So join us on Patreon for little fun extras like that. Just visit patreon.com slash outloudstories. On the show next time, we have a special live recording of the show from Vanderbilt featuring guests from season one. You really don't want to miss that one. Please share the show with someone as a way to start a conversation. Thanks for listening. Go in peace.